Hey, hey we're there now. Welcome to Healthy Discourse. We finally got connected with our friend Dave K. Hey, Dave, how are hey, you? How are you doing? <laughs> We're Sorry, technical difficulties are always a great time. <laughs> Sorry about that. I know, you're great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on the show. Um, we are, Wiggy and I are both here, and I think this is the first time we've done an interview, yeah. both of us together with someone else, and would love to introduce our audience to our friend and colleague, who is a cardiologist, Dr. Dave Kay. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I greatly appreciate it. Hi, Wiggy. How are you doing? Doing well. Um, so we're going to dive into a topic today that is prevalent, but maybe not getting as much attention as many of us feel that it should. And that is myocarditis and negative cardiac events that are happening, yes, from COVID infection, because it's important to understand how that works, but also from vaccine-induced myocarditis, um, especially what seems to be happening with our young people. And I get the, the pleasure to host both of our physicians today. And so, uh, Dave, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are in your yeah. practice, and and then we'll talk a little bit more about what myocarditis is and yeah, background's good to start with. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, um, so I'm a cardiologist. Um, work with uh, Wake Forest Baptist uh, Cardiology now, Atrium Health, Wake Forest Baptist. Um, I serve the Surrey County community for the most part. Um, I'm a general cardiologist, means I, I'm not the guy that puts in pacemakers or does stents. I'm the guy who sees a lot of folks in the community. Uh, and focus a lot on prevention, on diagnosis, on uh, medical treatment. <clears throat> and uh, so, so I see a little bit of everything in cardiology. Um, mm -hmm. I did my training at Wake Forest Baptist, uh, graduated from or finished cardiology fellowship in 2008 and practiced in the area along around Lake Norman for about 10 years and then uh, came and rejoined the Wake Forest Baptist staff in 2018 and have been working in Surrey County ever since. Gotcha. And um, obviously, there's a lot of <laughs> tension, for lack of a better term, <laughs> surrounding this situation that we are all in. And, um, you know, myocarditis is something that actually even the mainstream media does talk about occasionally, you know, in passing. But it does seem to be something that, to be honest with you, as a lay woman here, it's not something that I am very familiar with. And so I, I feel like I represent our audience well, because I always get confused. And then Wiggy corrects me on all the things I have wrong. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about what is myocarditis for those of us who might not understand what that actually means. Sure, yeah. So myocarditis is essentially it's an inflammatory uh, syndrome or injury to the heart muscle. The myocardium is the heart, uh, the heart muscle. Uh, when you put an itis on the end of just about anything, that usually means some form of uh, inflammatory or infectious issue. Uh, in this case, it's generally an inflammatory injury of the myocardium. Um, it's, it's something that we see not totally infrequently. Um, you do see it a lot with viral syndromes. Uh, you can see what's called toxic uh, myocarditis, which is, is chemical injury, a lot of times from medication. And then 
uh, postpartum cardiomyopathy is one of the nastier forms of uh, with, uh, you know, affecting young women uh, around the time of, of delivery uh, with a unfortunately fairly high morbidity and mortality to it when it does happen. But taking all comers uh, up until very recently, the most common cause of myocarditis is viral. Uh, frequently from common upper respiratory infection viruses. And, and myocarditis was recognized as a potential complication of COVID-19 infection fairly early on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and, and this is something that we I hear a lot about just, again, as I read things and that kind of thing that, oh, COVID causes myocarditis and this association with the vaccine is not as related as it's being, you know, that, that many people say that it is. Yeah, and so there, it, go ahead. Been, sorry. There's been some conflating of those two issues, but they are separate issues. Uh, mm-hmm. COVID infection myocarditis is a viral myocarditis. And we kind of add it to the long list of viruses that are capable of causing this kind of inflammatory injury to the heart muscle. Um, mm-hmm. The vaccine-associated myocarditis is a different mechani- mechanism of action and actually hits a fairly different population uh, than, the, than the COVID virus-caused uh, myocarditis. So there are two different issues, um, similar in the fact that you are dealing with heart muscle inflammation, heart muscle injury, uh, sometimes weakening of the heart muscle and other uh, related complications that can be fairly serious. It's it's similar that the myocarditis from vaccine or from infection can range from a relatively mild presentation all the way to life threatening. Uh, but that's a lot where the similarities end between COVID virus myocarditis and COVID vaccine myocarditis. Okay. Can you tell us then what are the differences? Sure. Uh, so the the, vac- the viral myocarditis um, it is we don't know really just to start off with we don't know for sure either form viral or vaccine myocarditis the exact mechanism of action. There's theories on it, uh, mm-hmm. but the viral myocarditis appears to be largely due to the uh, spike protein binding to the ACE2 receptor, which can upregulate um, the receptor and cause um, apoptosis of the cardiac cells, inflammation of the cardiac cells. Clinically, the um, COVID infection myocarditis is associated more with older patients. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of the risk factors that seem to predispose someone to have Myocarditis from the COVID virus itself are age, uh, history of hypertension, diabetes, and previous history of heart failure, all things that you're going to see in older patients. So uh, it's the patients who get infected with COVID who are older than 50 or particularly older than 75 with some of those risk factors that are more likely to get myocarditis. And in those patients, myocarditis associated with a COVID infection has a very, very poor prognostic sign. It tends to be associated with a more severe case of COVID and higher you know, risks of mortality should it happen. Um, so that's the COVID uh, virus associated myocarditis. The COVID vaccine associated myocarditis, again, there's not a, a clear definition of exactly what's going on to cause it to happen. We don't have a completely clear understanding of why it happens. 
But they're, they're, it's very clear that it is much more likely to happen in males and it's much more likely to happen in young people. Mm-hmm. So now with the COVID vaccine related myocarditis, you're, you're getting the higher incidence in a younger, healthier group uh, that actually has a much lower chance of adverse outcomes from the COVID virus that we're trying to protect them against. And, and so that's a, a significant difference when you're trying to look at a risk-benefit analysis to vaccination, particularly with regards to myocarditis. Right. Yeah. So, Dave, I know this, this is where there's some questions about the mechanism back before the vaccine injury. Mm-hmm. But do you want to take a stab at that? I said, I've, I've been trying to find some good research on what the mechanism is, and it does seem some somewhat vague as far as what the thought process is. <laughs> right. And, I, you know, I did a, a fair amount of lit search preparing for this um, and also just trying to, to, you know, handle the patients that are coming in. Um, and whether you look, there's studies in circulation and you know, American Journal of Cardiology, New England Journal of Medicine, and, and pretty much over and over again. Uh, the authors uh, admit that there is uncertainty in the cause. Um, the, some of the theories may be that there is an immune reaction to the mRNA uh, molecule. Um, some thought that it may be an immune reaction or an inflammatory reaction to the lipoprotein particle that the mRNA is delivered in with the vaccine. Uh, there is some thought that it could be an autoantibody generation, uh, possibly related to mimicry between the spike protein and your and antigens that your body creates. And, and so one of the theories that's posed there is that there's a good uptake of the uh, lipoprotein particle of the vaccine into the myocytes, uh, heart muscle cells. And that the spike protein then being produced and expressed from those cells uh, might elicit an, an autoimmune reaction to your own heart muscle. Hmm. Um, that's, again, one theory. Um, right. There is not a really good understanding of why. Even on cases where autopsy studies have been done or cardiac biopsies have been done in people who have had vaccine uh, related myocarditis, there still hasn't been a really uh, sure answer determined as to the mechanism of action here, which of yeah. course is disturbing because then we don't really know as much as we ought to about who might be at higher risk for this complication and how to screen for it. Right, mm-hmm. but but you are saying from the from the viral myocarditis that that is a that that is a spike protein mediated response so that is yeah, from it, it likely is and once again so the the when you have the va- uh, the viral infection <clears throat> you get the expression of the spike protein on the viral on the virus itself and it enters into cells via the ace2 receptor uh, mm-hmm. the the cardiac myocytes the heart muscle cells are rich in the ace2 receptors and so that's one of the reasons that uh, the viral uh, infection uh, is, is, has some likelihood to cause, uh, to affect the heart muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and there's direct and indirect responses there. Once again, cytokine storm or inflammatory response in cytokine storm is a big part in just about any thought as to how myocarditis happens, especially yeah. in this case of COVID. Mm-hmm. So one of the, um, good explanations I saw, I've seen on mechanism of action is that 
you get the SARS-CoV-2 virus that enters the myocytes. It may cause apoptosis or destruction of the cardiac cells, which releases both viral and cardiac antigens, which then causes a cytokine storm and autoreactive antibodies causing the inflammation in the heart muscle. Again, that's with the COVID infection. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It is interesting because it seems like the heart is particularly susceptible uh, to this injury from the vaccine, yes. as opposed to lots of other organs that also seem to be exposed to the spike protein. So it is an interesting uh, kind of detective work to try and figure out what's what's happening in, in these cases. Yeah, and I think, you know, getting a little bit outside of cardiology, there's so many different um, adverse reactions or different types of adverse reactions that people are reporting following vaccination. Um, and, and it, it uh, you know, how much of that is some degree of organ intolerance or, or an inflammation um, in, the or, in the end organ? Because we do know from the Japanese study and from other studies that this lipoprotein particle really gets taken up fairly broadly through the body. Right. It may be that with the heart, the um that someone gets a really bad case you know if someone, if someone gets vaccinated just has a really bad reaction uh with the with the heart with the myocarditis that it's so dramatic and it's so quick um you know if you get uh let's say there's the concern for example um of lipoprotein uptake in the ovaries that's been seen right. at, at those cell level studies um a significant inflammatory injury to the ovaries might not show up for years and years Whereas mm. with the heart, it can show up with chest pain, shortness of breath, heart failure symptoms, heart arrhythmias. And that's right. dramatic and it happens quickly. Mm. That's a good point. And that's one thing that I've, you know, a, a lot of the narrative that we hear is, oh, you know, anything bad that's going to happen happens within the first two weeks. And as, I think with what you just mentioned, Dave, you know, comparing the heart with ovaries is a great explanation or something that we should think about as citizens and patients that is, you know, points to the fact that we, there's not going to necessarily be, you know, some acute major response from the ovaries in within two weeks, whereas with the heart, that's something different. Yeah. I mean, I think it's very legitimate to say, okay, you know, the, the, the injection of the vaccine with the lipoprotein particle, that's going to distribute quickly. Um, the spike production from the vaccine is designed to occur sort of robustly and quickly and then fade away. Um, Mm -hmm. And so if it works as advertised, then most of the maybe acute injury that may be related to vaccine is going to be within the first two weeks. But some, some injuries are going to clinically manifest right away. Others may be something, an injury that, that ends up showing up later and um, myocarditis, tends to be fairly, (laughs) it's not subtle in most cases, and it tends to happen fairly quickly if it's going to happen. Right. And and I think that's just something important for us to consider that, yes, and we are seeing a a big increase in myocarditis. So what does that mean for some of these other organs down the road? Well, I think the most recent research, I'm not sure if you've seen this too, Dave, but it sounds like the spike protein production probably is going to last for over a year. I think 15 months was the most recent uh, number thrown out. Yeah, and that's what I think always been a question. There's a there's a very good article that I recommend anybody who's listening to to go look up. And I don't have the citation, but I think it was 2017 in Nature magazine. And it was so, you know, it was obviously before COVID and before 
um, maybe so much in, inflammatory material was thrown our, out around the topic, but it was a, basically a summary of the state of the art of, of mRNA vaccine technology. Um, written by a guy who was researching in the field. He was very enthusiastic about it, but that, those were, that was one of the challenges that was pointed out in 2017 was how to modulate it so you get the right amount of um, antigen production mm-hmm. and how to modulate it so the antigen production is turned off so that you don't turn the body into essentially a factory that's making antigen continuously for an undue period of time because the immune system really needs just to see it uh, to develop the immune response, um, anything beyond the initial presentation of the antigen to the immune system is, is probably more harmful than good. And so I think, you know, that's certainly an important question that, uh, most everyone should be trying to sort out right now is, um, you know, how are we doing in terms of that? How, how is the vaccine working in terms of giving the body the presentation of the antigen and then turning off that production? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about severity of cases. So it, we've, we've kind of compared um, natural infection to vaccination when it comes to myocarditis. Our, and I know this isn't, there's no end all be all for every case, but in general, are people getting sicker with myocarditis and those that are experiencing natural infection from COVID or vaccine injury? from myocarditis. Um, right. With- That's a, it's a great question. Um, one thing to consider, of course, is that the patients who are going to get more likely to get myocarditis from the natural infection are, again, their, their risk factors to get myocarditis from the natural infection are that they're older and they've got cardiac comorbidities. And so when you do see somebody who gets the natural infection, myocarditis from it, it again, it, it, it tends to, it's going to be more likely to be fairly severe. Um, but the myocarditis that we're seeing from the vaccine, because it's mostly hitting young, healthy people, um, it, you know, the, if you if you do a lit research on it, you're going to see sort of again and again a statement that it, it ends up more often than not being mild in its presentation with a good recovery of heart function. But these are still very young people who have perfectly healthy hearts who are undergoing a cardiac injury. Um, mm-hmm. who tend to survive it when it happens, but the long-term impact on their cardiovascular health is uncertain. And you are dealing with elevations in troponin. Troponin, of course, is a cardiac uh, marker. It's a cardiac muscle enzyme that is elevated when there is injury and death of heart muscle. So when you're talking about you know, 14, 15-year-old boys, uh, who have perfectly normal, healthy hearts, and you have a complication of myocarditis with elevation troponins, therefore injury to the heart muscle, uh, death of heart muscle, uh, with potential drop in their overall heart function, um, you're dealing with a very serious injury uh, to a population uh, that, that shouldn't have that kind of injury. Uh, so, it, it, there's, a, there's a degree of severity involved in simply the fact that this is something that uh, we as a healthcare system are inducing on perfectly mm-hmm. healthy young hearts. Uh, these are kids who are, are not set up for this kind of problem. And when they do get it, regardless of how rare it may or may not be, it is a problem. Um, this is an athletic age. It's an age where kids are playing sports. Um, one of the treatments for myocarditis is rest. 
no, don't right. elevate the heart rate. Don't engage in athletics and activity. Um, and so when you, when you have a kid who's, you know, a high school kid and maybe wanting to compete in high school athletics or just engage in the kind of exercise that we know we all need to be engaging in, particularly at that age, establishing good habits. And, and one of the treatments is don't run, uh, don't play sports, don't engage mm-hmm. in normal adolescent activities. Um, it's a, it's a tremendous problem for those kids who do get this. And so Dave, I think, you know, we can look at this and think about the kids that are perhaps at the highest risk or the young males, I should say, because it's yeah. not just, just, um, under 18. Cause from what I understand, really 30 and under seem to be at the highest risk. Yeah, it actually, the, so there's a, a good study in circulation um, looking at CDC data on this. And just if you'll bear with me, I'll break down some of the numbers on that. Sure. Um, starting at, at age 12 to 17, uh, females um, had about 9.5 times elevation in their risk of myocarditis compared to that, you know, after vaccination compared to what you would expect from unvaccinated females. Males in the age of 12 to 17 were at least 32 times higher than population risk. Um, so that's a massive, massive increase, relative risk uh, increase in, in males in that age, but still significant in females. Uh, mm-hmm. Ages 18 to 24, males had about a 27.4 times elevation in their risk of myocarditis compared to unvaccinated males at that age. Females were 5.7 times higher. Uh, ages 25 to 39, excuse me, 25 to 29, uh, males were at 8.5 times elevation in their myocarditis risk compared to unvaccinated males in that age, and females at about a 1.4 times higher elevation. So with, with girls, when you got to the mid-20s, <clears throat> the risk really dropped off and became no increase over, over baseline. But with males, it remained elevated. Males aged 30 to 39 were at a 3.8 times higher risk. Uh, compared to unvaccinated males of that age, again, for myocarditis. And ages 40 to 49, males remained at least two times higher risk. So Mm. it is a significant elevation in risk uh, for men, uh, well, boys to men, all the way up to 49 years old, although that that relative risk increase does drop as age goes up. Uh, For girls, though, it was still an elevated risk. So when you're looking at girls 25 and younger, or 24 and younger, you're looking at a significant elevation in their relative risk compared to the population. To put raw numbers on that, for males uh, ages 12 to 17, there was about one case of myocarditis for every 6,536 vaccine doses. For girls in that age range, it was one case for every 49,000 doses. For males aged 18 to 24, it was one case of myocarditis for every 7,692 vaccine doses. And then for males, when you got up to 25 to 29, it was about one case for every 20,000 vaccine doses. So, um, you know, when we talk about rates of this happening, one for young men and the younger they are, the worse it appears, uh, there is a significant elevation in the risk of myocarditis compared to what they ought to have for that age. And it's a not insignificant rate of these events happening. And you're talking about a myocarditis, which is largely... Um, you know, which is injury to heart muscle, um, which is potentially permanent damage to heart muscle and can be associated with very severe outcomes, including death, happening in one out of 6,500 to 7,500 boys or young men 
uh, up through the end of about college age range. And that, that's a, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the reasons this has caught attention um, <laughs> is that this is a young, healthy population with a not insignificant rate of adverse events that can be quite serious. Dave, question, and I know we might not know a lot yet because the vaccines have just been given to five to 11 year olds over the last couple of months. And we might not have good data on since the emergency use authorization. Right. Do yeah. we have any data from the, I, I know there's very limited right. data available from <laughs> the trials. Yeah, I've seen. And right now is kind of the trial, but right. do we know anything about that age group? I have seen, yeah, I have seen no real data on that age group. A um, couple of points there. One, I think right now we're still only talking about the Pfizer BioNTech um, vaccine. Number two, <clears throat> they're going at a very, very low dose uh, for that. And um, still, uh, I think, trying to determine whether or not, you know, it is two doses going to be enough? I think in the younger age group, six months to five years, they're looking at a, potentially even a third dose of, um, to, to elicit the immune response they're looking for. But so we're going with a lower dose, significantly lower dose compared to the adult dosing. Um, and the, the adult dosing, I think, was ages 12 and up. So, you know, we're, with the five to 11 age range, we're going with a much lower dose. And so we don't really don't know. Uh, yet. I, I Obviously, you don't like the trend that the younger the patients get, both male and female, the more likely they are to have a myocarditis response. Um, but once you drop down the dose of the mRNA vaccine, is that going to lower that? We don't know. Um, there's I have seen report that Pfizer has included uh, some attempts to mitigate the myocarditis uh, reaction in the kids, uh, in the young kids, five to 11 in their dose. Um, but I think right now that's very much up in the air. Um, and again, right. if you go back and you look and you say just risk benefit, myocarditis is a problem for young people with these vaccines and how severe of a problem, how frequent of a problem. I know there's a, always hot button debates on this, but it is a problem. There's no question about that. And the younger the patients are, the less likely they are to get really sick from COVID. Uh, so then you have to take a look. You know, I, if, I, I do have <laughs> a five to 11 year old. Um, mm -hmm. And um, that's, that's a, a question that I, as a parent, uh, on top of being a doctor, would certainly want answered for my kid who may have already had COVID, may have virtually no risk of severe illness with COVID given young age range. Um, you know, what's the, what's the risk benefit analysis here? And, and so I do think, mm -hmm. you know, we need to know that. Uh, and unfortunately, we really don't have the information on that yet. Yeah, if we're trying to kind of estimate, you know, what sort of potential complications there may be for these kids that are that are getting this myocarditis, uh, how, how would you try to estimate like what sort of long term risk that there is? Do you look at like the elevation troponin to see how high it is to determine how much like heart death there is or how would you determine like, yeah there's what a lot of that's a great question there's a lot of really good ways to try to look at um prognosis going forward and so one of them is going to be your, your troponin level the higher troponin level the more myocardium that is involved and injured or killed um echocardiography is something that's very routine for myocarditis cases just about anybody who presents with symptoms concerning for myocarditis ekg changes 
that you may see with myocarditis, elevating troponins, you're going to get an echocardiogram, mm -hmm. which is just a simple ultrasound of the heart. And that's really one of our best uh, ways to look at the heart pumping function. The, what we, we, could, we call it the ejection fraction. So the percentage of blood that's pumped out with each beat mm -hmm. of the heart. Every time your heart fills up with blood, you should be pumping out about 55 to 65% of the blood with each beat. That's your ejection fraction. That's normal. And so mm -hmm. you want to see, is there a reduction in ejection fraction? Uh, with myocarditis, with more severe cases, you will see a reduction in ejection fraction. You'll see an enlargement of the heart that happens fairly quickly with viral myocarditis or with vaccine mm -hmm. myocarditis. And, and so that's going to be a big prognostic factor. So if you've got a, a you know, 15-year-old kid and he gets vaccinated and has the symptoms, has the elevation troponin, you get the echocardiogram, you see that the ejection fraction is down. That's a, a significant marker of severity. And that's a kid you're mm -hmm. really going to want to treat uh, very carefully uh, to, to try to allow the heart to recover and see the ejection fraction hopefully come back to normal. But even when it does, this is a kid who's, who may not be able to safely engage in sports indefinitely. Um, mm. And so that's going to be a, a big prognostic factor. Some of the other things you look at, you see heart rate elevation. If, if the heart's beating more weakly, it tends to elevate its heart rate. And so we try to look at that and treat that. Uh, cardiac MRI is a great modality to look at that. That will show you heart size and the squeezing function, but it'll also show you whether or not there's dead heart muscle. Uh, you can do uh, a kind of, uh, it's called delayed enhancement or, or imaging, looking to see if there is heart muscle that's dead. And if so, quantify how much and the distribution of it. And that's going to be a big prognostic factor as well. Yeah. Well, one thing that I find interesting, and I, I think I've heard this from Dr. McCullough, uh, is that it, it appears that the myocarditis from, from the vaccine, that the troponin elevation is actually really high. Yeah, uh, it, it can compared be. Compared to, to viral myocarditis. Is that, is that true? Is that, is that what you're saying, too, that the, um, the troponin elevation is actually higher? Yeah, you can, you can see that. Um, again, I, I want to be cautious that there is a, a, a range in severity uh, for both um, vaccine myocarditis and viral myocarditis. It, looking at some of the studies, you could go on a research, you do see uh, significant elevations. There's American Journal of Cardiology study that found that the mean troponin elevation level was 12.9. This is on a scale where troponin should be undetectable. Anything under about point, anything over about 0.1 is abnormal. Mm -hmm. So you're talking troponin levels, you know, well over 100 times normal range with uh, in in a lot of these patients with the mean elevation was fairly significant. Troponin levels in a circulation study were kind of hitting into the same range. Um, so you do, but you know, you can see troponin level elevation in a myocarditis case that's 0 0.2, 0 0.3, a very minimal elevation, and then you can see it in the hundreds. And so um, there's a range on it. I, I guess I don't, I haven't had enough personal cases to say, yes, I am seeing a significantly higher rate uh, in, in vaccine myocarditis compared to viral myocarditis. I just haven't seen that many of either. You know, it's a mm -hmm. community practice and you sort of have to aggregate information when you're talking about numbers like one out of 6,000 doses or one out of 7,000 doses to, 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 to have it appear in front of you in your practice. A guy like Dr. McCullough, who's got a national network and <laughs> lots right. of patients referred around the country, he's probably gave them a lot more data than me. But I do think that, yes, because it is um, 
you're dealing with the heart muscle, the myocytes that are producing the spike protein, if, especially if there is an autoimmune response yeah. from mimicry of the spike protein, you are likely to see very, you know, relatively high levels of, of troponin in these patients. So I think one thing might be good to clarify then, this is one, one point as far as risk benefit uh, analysis goes, as far as myocarditis goes, this, I think this argument is often thrown out there as well. Myocarditis is a risk with the a virus and it's a risk with the vaccine and they kind of equate that with kids as well yeah. from the risk benefit analysis for kids the risk for myocarditis from the vaccine is definitely much higher than the risk from the virus yeah and i think we we really need to, to hammer that one home and people just right. need to understand this because it's it's really kind of shocking to see some of the statements that have been put out there um myocarditis from the virus is much more likely to happen in your older, sicker patients. It's very unlikely to happen in children and mm -hmm. young, healthy patients. Um, the myocarditis from the vaccine is much more likely to happen in the young, healthy people. And so that it goes straight to the risk benefit question. I'm going to, again, run through some numbers here. And these are based on the CDC's numbers because the CDC, um, I believe the American Academy of Pediatricians, and uh, this is picked up by some of the mainstream news, said, well, you know, you're more, you're more likely to get myocarditis from COVID infection if you're a kid than you are from the vaccine. Therefore, right. the risk of, you know, the, therefore go ahead, you know, get the kids the vaccines to protect right. them from the myocarditis from the virus. Well, let's, let's take a look at those numbers. So what the CDC has reported in their studies is a 0.133% chance of getting myocarditis in hospitalized COVID patients for children. That's in hospitalized COVID patients. Mm. Okay. Um, so that is essentially boils down to, I believe, one case of myocarditis for every 752 hospitalized children or for every 752 children hospitalized with COVID. Okay. However, now let's take a look at how many vaccinations do you have to give to prevent one hospitalization? By the CDC's estimates, FDA's estimates, it's, you have to vaccinate 4,651 kids to prevent one hospitalization. Mm -hmm. So if you vaccinate 4,651 kids to prevent one hospitalization and you get one myocarditis case for every 752 hospitalizations, you come out to 3,497,552 kids need to be vaccinated to prevent one COVID infection induced case of myocarditis. Going by the CDC VAERS data, you get one myocarditis case for every 24,621 fully vaccinated children. Keep in mind, VAERS probably underestimates. We know it does um, right. because it's self-reported. So if we stick with it, though, if we take the VAERS data at face value and we take the CDC data at face value, if we're giving one case of myocarditis, if we're causing myocarditis once for every 24,621 kids we vaccinate and we're preventing one case of myocarditis, for every 3,497,552 kids that we vaccinate, we can expect to cause 142 cases of vaccine-induced myocarditis for every COVID-induced myocarditis case that we prevent in children. And that's, that's that is just devastating when you really look at the math. And then we need to, on top of that, consider the fact that not every child will get COVID. And by many estimates, it's, you know, 40%, maybe even 50% of, of unvaccinated children may have, already ha may have already had COVID and therefore have natural immunity to it. Right. So what you're looking at 
with and you always have to think about this with any mass vaccination program when you take the vaccine you are 100 percent exposed to the vaccine so any potential mm -hmm. complication of the vaccine you've you've taken the vaccine you're exposed to the chance of the complication you're not necessarily going to get the virus itself and so you know if you look just at pediatric myocarditis with vaccination versus simply allowing kids to be out there and, and being normal kids and taking the chance of beginning COVID, if you're looking just at myocarditis, by trying to vaccinate all those kids, we're going to certainly cause many more cases of myocarditis than we're ever gonna prevent. Yeah. Um, and that goes to the, you know, there was a, a study that came out, at, I believe it was in Lancet, um, is a, a Swedish study, um, but it was looking at the VAERS database, the American database, and that estimated um, looking at the kids' expected hospitalization rate from COVID, not just COVID myocarditis, but just the chance of them being hospitalized with COVID. For healthy boys age 12 to 15, that study uh, came out with a rate of 3.7 to 6.1 hospitalizations from vaccine-induced myocarditis for any for every uh, COVID, I'm saying that wrong, sorry, the chance of a kid 12 to 15, for a boy 12 to 15 to be hospitalized from myocarditis from the vaccine was 3.7 to 6.1 times higher than their chance of being hospitalized for COVID over the next for 20 any, days. For any reason. For any reason, right. So, you know, again, we're with kids because healthy boys, healthy girl, boys and girls are very unlikely to end up being hospitalized from COVID and very unlikely to get myocarditis from COVID. To expose them to the myocarditis risk of the vaccine, we really have to look at those numbers and, and make decisions about you know, risk benefit. Um, and that's what this is all about for all of us is just risk benefit. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head is that, unfortunately, we talk about risks very little and benefits a lot as a you know in our common narrative and so um we're not really in a space where we're understanding informed consent especially as parents right now um in my opinion and so it's something that we have to do our own research and listen to a variety of experts like you and probably like those who disagree with you. Hmm. But I think the important thing is to consider the facts and the arguments on both sides. So someone that might disagree with Dave and say, oh, no, no, he's got it all wrong. Well, why? Tell me, tell me what I've, tell me what's wrong with the information that's presented and how it makes, how the benefits outweigh the risks for my young child under 17. Yeah, and, and if I could just kind of, I think summarize the the gist of what you were trying to say, and you, you can kind of correct me if I, if I get it wrong, but because I think it's this, this is the important piece for people that are listening to, to really understand is that, so one, they, the risk of myocarditis from the virus for this age group that we're talking about, especially for kids, is really, really low. Uh, this doesn't happen in this age group, and it's very unlikely, much more likely in the older age group, which they have higher risk for myocarditis just to begin with. So the risk from the vaccine for getting myocarditis for especially young boys is much higher than the virus. That's that's the important point, number one. And then the important point, number two, is that just looking at this one, this one complication 
from the vaccine, this one complication of myocarditis, is that you are more likely, and I'll make sure I understand this correctly, you're more likely to be hospitalized from myocarditis from the vaccine than you are to be hospitalized from all possibilities, all side effects, all issues that happen from getting the natural infection. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. Thank you. You, you put that one much more succinctly. Uh, that Yes, in 12 to 15-year-old boys, you're three, essentially four to six times more likely to be hospitalized from myocarditis from the vaccine than you are to be hospitalized from COVID. Uh, for 16 to 17-year-old boys, it's about two to three and a half times higher likelihood of being hospitalized from vaccine-induced myocarditis than from COVID. And and yes, and that's from co- any complication of COVID. Right. Um, I think the data is self-evident. And I think, Emily, what you were getting at there as well, that um, you know, we need to be having these discussions as healthcare professionals, and we need to be having these discussions as parents. And then we as healthcare professionals need to have the honest discussion with parents when they are looking at the question of these vaccinations, just like we would with any other medical treatment. You know, if you were to, to bring one of your kids to me and I'd say, well, you know, we should do a heart catheterization, you'd want to know about the potential cause of the potential of, of causing injury from the heart catheterization versus what benefit we're going to get out of it. Right. Um, right. It's a fair question. And it's one that actually we are required really by law <laughs> to yeah. tell you, um, you do inform right. consents for procedures. Certain medications may be, you know, if they're, if they're emergency use, if they're investigational, they require informed consent. Any medication, even if it's FDA approved, if I'm a good doctor, I probably ought to be telling you, hey, these are some of the potential side effects of this medication I'd like to give you, but here's why I want to give it to you. And here's why I think that the medication's more likely to do good than harm for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and those are conversations that need to be had. The data is self-explanatory that the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine elevates with younger people, particularly with younger males, at the same time that the risk of significant or severe COVID outcomes is decreasing in those Mm -hmm. age groups. The risk of myocarditis from the vaccine decreases as we get older, at the same time as the risk of of severe COVID increases. So it's a very different risk-benefit analysis just in terms of myocarditis. When you yeah. look at vaccination of someone who is 70 with a history of heart disease and, and heart failure compared to a, a 14-year-old or 15-year-old boy who's uh, wanting to play sports right. and, yeah. and parents are being asked to consider vaccination for that kid so they can engage in athletics. And this is a very, a very different risk-benefit analysis we're dealing with here. Yeah, um, that's, a good, that's a good breakdown, I think, of, of those numbers. And I think that's kind of what we've been talking about all along is that you have to look at all of the different variables and risk factors when you're making when you're making a decision. I do think for kids that this risk benefit analysis is a little bit clearer as far as where does where does that line where does that line fall? Um, one thing that I think is kind of a, another counter argument, which I just want to get your quick thoughts on it, because I know we've, we've taken a lot of your time here. Uh, but one of the arguments is that, well, we, you know, even if there is this potential risk, uh, let's say with myocarditis, because I think that that can't really be denied at this point. But it's the, the argument is, well, this is for the this is for the greater good. You know, we, we have to vaccinate all the kids in order to save grandma. Right. You know, kind of do you have any kind of thoughts on kind of that counter argument? Yeah, I do. I think, number one, it, it's it's it doesn't say anything real good about society if we're saying let's expose children to a risk 
to protect um, older people. But, you know, traditionally, I right. think we, we have erred on the side of protecting children. Um, and I think most grandparents, if they'd say, if you ask them, hey, you're, do you want your grandchild to be exposed mm. to this potential risk to save you, they'd probably say no. <laughs> I've lived yeah. my life, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Please don't, please don't potentially harm my twelve-year-old uh, grandchild mm. to save me. But uh, mm. I think as a society, we that it's kind of a, a weird, weird thing that we're talking about that. But but getting back to the vaccine specifically, um, it would be wonderful if these vaccines did a great job in preventing people from being able to spread COVID. And I think all of these talks we're getting into now about everything from, you know, school mandates to work mandates, healthcare worker mandates, uh, et cetera, this sort of mentality that do your part, get your, get your vaccine to protect other people. Mm -hmm. It would be really wonderful if the vaccines were as effective as we would like them to be in preventing transmission from one person to the other. But, but we see now, not only in some of the scientific studies about the viral load that can develop with the Delta variant and likely we'll see with Omicron variant um, mm -hmm. in in vaccinated versus unvaccinated people not being particularly different. Viral load is what largely determines transmissibility. Uh, so in, and unfortunately, in the real world, we're seeing uh, high transmission rates, even in heavily vaccinated populations. Um, you know, NYU, uh, I think is 98 percent undergraduate vaccinated, just went to remote learning uh, because of rising cases. Uh, New Hampshire and uh, Vermont, you know, areas where you're 80 to 85 to 90 percent fully vaccinated in the adult population are having record numbers of cases and even hospitalizations. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the idea of, of should, you know, Johnny at 13 years old uh, take the vaccine to protect his teachers or his grandparents, it's a noble question. But unfortunately, there's really no data at this point to suggest that vaccinating Johnny is going to do a whole lot to protect people around him. And, and so it, it, it does boil it down then largely to the question of the individual person. What is their risk benefit analysis with the vaccine? Have right. they had COVID? Do they have natural immunity? Because thank God, natural immunity does appear to be robust and appears to be relatively long lasting and good against variants and probably more effective than vaccination in reducing transmission. Um, so there's a lot of questions that go in, but, but I think get back to your question, Wiggy, uh, vaccinating children protect to protect the elders. Unfortunately, the vaccines don't appear to be as effective as we'd like in accomplishing that goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time today. You've given us a lot to chew on and I hope, I know that our audience will really enjoy yeah, well done. listening to your expertise your experience, um, things that we don't know and things that we do know at this point. And I think that one of my biggest issues with the way that everything has been from the very beginning of COVID presented to us is we jump to conclusions to try to help people feel more comfortable, but those conclusions are unknowns. You know, they're from the very beginning, it's been, oh, well, you know, Wear, use hand sanitizer and wear gloves because of this and then wear a mask because of this and then you know jumping to all these conclusions of things rather than just telling the population hey there are risks to this to this virus there are risks to uh, vaccines there are risks to all of it and there's a lot that we just do not know yet and i think that's just what we have to remember 
as a population. And therefore, we have to really dig into what we do know before we start making decisions for our own family members. So yeah, I, I agree completely. And I think one of the things that's incumbent on us as, as healthcare providers and as a healthcare system is to be continuously learning. Uh, these vaccines are a new technology. Um, therefore, there's a lot that we are learning real time about them. Uh, COVID is a new virus, uh, or it's somewhat new virus anyway, um, related to, to older viruses, but it, it behaves differently. And we're getting new, new variants of COVID that come along, which means we're continuously getting new data. And if we're not ready to adjust our thinking to the numbers that are coming, whether we like what those numbers say or not, then we're not doing a job for our patients or for society. And we as providers absolutely have got to always have a sober and even-handed look at any medical intervention, uh, including the COVID mRNA vaccines, looking at the patient in front of us, their fears, their concerns, their desires, and their real risks from COVID, from the vaccine, and trying to give them our best uh, unbiased estimate of where that risk-benefit analysis falls. Yep. Yep. Wow, Dave, you echo Wiggy and what he's been saying for the last been year. for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you again for your time today. Really appreciate it and um, really grateful to you and all the work that you're doing and the care that you have for your patients and for so many that are looking for yeah. trusted providers. So thanks again. Have a great evening and we'll catch up with you next time. Thank you all very much. I appreciate your time.